and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined today by Yahoo Soccer's Henry Bushnell. Henry, hello from Chicago. Hello, Daryl. It's great to be on with you. And I guess I've got that the wrong way around. I'm in Richmond, you're in Chicago. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Chicago, which I, I suppose Taylor was a bit more down on Chicago than you were in the last episode, but you guys have some not so... Not so flattering things to say about Chicago. I'm a big fan of Chicago. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure what Taylor's problem was. <laughs> no, I understand. And I look, and then, I, and now I look out the window, and it's cold and rainy and dark. So I understand, and especially when we're talking about soccer. I yes. understand it. <laughs> His complaints were mostly weather based. It was not <laughs> exactly. not, about, not about the people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are, you're based in Chicago, but the thing that happened in Chicago last week and you attended was the U.S. Soccer Board meeting. And you wrote two stories um, about the board meeting for Yahoo Soccer. Um, I've got all kinds of questions I want to ask you about this. Uh, but first, I want to kind of set the scene for our listeners. How much access did you have? Like, we, Was this like you had a glass uh, to your ear to the door listening in? Was there an open session for journalists? Like, How, how did U.S. Soccer present this to the media? I was sitting right behind Ernie Stewart and Jay Berhalter. Um, wow. So it's basically it's a it's a two it's a big two day thing. Um, the first day is an open session um, that's open to media and to, th- to this one they actually because it was in Chicago they invited all their staff to come and there were probably I don't know thirty I guess staff members um, and various other people like there were a couple of representatives from the American Outlaws there. Um, and this is like the so, – so that Friday is the less interesting part of it. Saturday is when all the good stuff happens, and that's behind closed doors, and a lot, most of it does not get out to the public. Okay. Um, but so Friday is basically – yeah, like, I mean to kind of set the scene, you just like understand the dynamics of an organization like this. It's essentially like – so the board sets the vision. The staff executes the vision. So sitting around these tables are board and like – high-level staff members, and basically a significant chunk of it, of the open session, is various, you know, C-level staffers telling the board how their departments are executing that vision and how they're doing. And, like, in some cases, it's pretty, like, cut and dry. Here's the reality. Here's how we're doing. Like, for example, with the the CFO, um, basically, like, lays out how they're going along with this five-year spending plan and how, like, which we can talk about later, like how yeah. you know, $9 million of, of a year on legal fees as opposed to $3 million, how that's impacting the spending plan they laid, laid out. And then yeah. some of the other not, presentations... Not positively is my guess. No, no, no. And then some of the other presentations are kind of feel like more, almost like self-promotional, like putting a positive spin on things for everybody. And an example of that is like, like Ernie Stewart's gave a presentation on just like how the men's national team is doing basically. And it was all, you know, rosy and everything's going well and stuff like that. So <laughs> was it edited highlights of the 2019 performance? I, <laughs> I, can, I can see there are some positives, right? But you've got to, you've got to kind of spin it to make it all positive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So he's talking about, I mean, obviously, I mean, he admitted that he admitted that they had, they had two goals to win the gold cup and to uh, qualify for the semifinals of the nation's league. And, he admitted that they failed with the first one um, yeah. and didn't quite admit that they – I mean, they, they they succeeded with the second one, I guess, but not exactly how a lot of people would like right. uh, would have liked them to. Um, yeah, he, they he wanted it to be that, smoother, but, right? So what, let, right. let's start there then. What else did Ernie Stewart say was a positive for the men's national team in 2019? So I actually thought one of the most interesting parts of this whole – this this whole it, it was a three three plus hours, um, it, not even counting the media stuff afterwards. Uh, Ernie Stewart. 
No, 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 no. Of the, the whole board meeting. Ooh, the whole Friday session of the board meeting. No, 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 no. Um, so one of, the, one of the most interesting parts of the whole thing was actually during Ernie Stewart's presentation. He, uh, he, he, he laid out this – he had this table. He had the slide that said – and actually, I have the slides. Um, he said something like – basically like this, this year we're playing with the, the youngest and most inexperienced group of players that the U.S. men's national team has ever had at the start of our World Cup qualifying cycle. Okay. Um, oh, I saw this in your article, right? Didn't have the lowest average age, according to Ernie right. Stewart. Right. So it's like, according to Ernie Stewart, the the average age is 25.8 years. And that's lower than, in, in 2010, it was at 26.6. Um, and that's that's at the starting 11. Um, overall, we're at, is at 25.9. Okay. Um, and like, as he's giving this, though, Sunil Gulati kind of like cuts him off and says, hold up, like, what, what, what exactly are these numbers? Like, when are these ages calculated? And Ernie kind of, like, struggled to explain it a bit, and then we, he got around to saying that it was at the beginning of the cycle, but Sunil's like, like what, what does that mean? Um, because technically, like, this World Cup qualifying cycle hasn't really started yet. Yeah, um, September so, 2020 is when it starts, right? Right. So apparently Ernie had calculated it, this year's numbers based on the start of the Nations League, which was mm. a couple of months ago, and he had calculated the previous World Cup cycles, or somebody else had calculated the previous World Cup cycles based on the start of the penultimate round of World Cup qualifying. Um, and those obviously, you know, in the cycle, you know, the Nations League started more than three years away from the World Cup. Right. Uh, so there's a bit, it, and like, so he's Sunil, cheated like, by a year. Right, he's basically cheated by a year. So, and and, by, and if and if you can sit, if you add a year to his numbers, then this is not even the most <laughs> the youngest uh, and most inexperienced group of players ever. So, okay, I, I have two questions. Then, one: yeah. Do you think Ernie Stewart was deliberately trying to mislead, or is this just um, a calculation error? I have no idea. Um, it might be a. a I would. Uh, maybe may, I guess I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, because um, it does have the air of to, to quote Stephen Colbert, like truthiness to it, right? Like right, Pulisic exactly, young, yeah. McKenney's young, Josh Sargent is young, Sergio Dest is young. You know, I mean, there are a lot of young right. players on this U.S. national team, and it's like it is the narrative that they want to portray, and it's like what everybody's been saying they should be doing, especially after what happened in 2017. So yeah. um, I don't know, and I mean, even even with that adjustment, like it still is one of the younger groups. So. Yeah. Yeah, I get what he's saying, um, but I get it, I, I don't know. Like it, the, the whole overall, like the overall sense I got from his presentation was he was trying to put a positive spin on things, and that certainly helped him with that. I'd say. So my second question: Why was Sunil Galati there? He's not the president anymore. Yeah, so he's so the past president gets a spot on the board. So ah. when Sunil when Sunil was president, Dr. Bob was still on the board. Right um, now, Dr. Bob is not on the board anymore, uh, but Sunil still there and. Yeah, he was um, – he certainly like – he often seems like the smartest guy in the room and is the smartest guy in the room and yeah. seemed like like seemed like that again. He, cer- like, he certainly has more of a background in numbers than Ernie Stewart does, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting also to see Sunil Galati being the one challenging the narrative of US soccer because he used to be the one out there um, presenting the narrative. Right, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I found it so inter- that moment so interesting. Yep. <laughs> All right, sticking with um with any Stewart, I, I did see in your reporting that 
Like, so Ernie Stewart has been promoted essentially to sporting director, right, overseeing the men's and women's programs. And right. it seems like he talked a little bit about replacing himself, the U.S. men's national team general manager. Um, the quote in your story is that the, the, the next GM will have other responsibilities than I had when I started. Um, was there any indication or can we even speculate on what the next GM, what the role will be and how it will be different to what Ernie Stewart was doing? Yeah, so I think, you know, there was a lot of maybe controversy is a bit bit too strong, but there were a lot of people criticizing U.S. soccer for what they laid out as the role of the GM when Ernie Stewart um, got or before Ernie Stewart got the job and that it was too narrow. Right. And that the it was only focused on the senior national team and it didn't have any say over youth teams or anything like that. It sounds like Ernie agreed with that and that it was too narrow and that he wants this person to have like he he wants their domain to be to be a bit broader. Um, and it sounds like that's what's going to happen. Now, obviously, Ernie has more say over everything now as a sporting director, but I think he wants the GMs um, to, to have... So, so Ernie, as a sporting director, wants to present a vision for the whole national team set up, um, and he wants the youth teams to be aligned with the senior teams and, and, and things along those lines. And I think he wants the GM on the men's side as well as the women's side, I would assume, um, to be able to have to, to be able to get youth teams in line as well. So I think he I believe he specifically mentioned um, youth teams as something that this next GM is going to have say over. Now, of course, the GM will have less say in a lot of things because he'll have Ernie above him. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't the, I, I guess, you know, the idea is probably that it's not going to be I, we, we have no idea who exactly they're looking at for this type of role. Um and Ernie Ernie said he will eventually like will eventually get more info on this once the search process is closer to being over or is actually over. Um, but my my sense is the main thing is that it won't be confined confined to the senior team. It'll have say over the youth teams as well. So meaning that they'll have a big role in selecting the you know the next U twenty coach and the the other um, age groups. And maybe that Kate Margraff's role as women's GM will be will be similar. Yeah, that's what I would think so. Yeah, like I would assume, and I and Ernie will again. I, I we'll see what the dynamic like is between Ernie and the and that GM, um, and how they what the balance of power is like there. But yes, I would imagine that both of them uh, would have say over that. And did he mention any sort of timeline for when they might be appointing a men's GM? No, but it sounds like um, on Saturday during the executive session, he was kind of going to. First, I think the first step is kind of presenting this new vision for what the role is going to be to the board, getting that approved, oh, and wow. then and then they'll then they can kind of and, and I, I'm sure he already has candidates, um, yeah. but uh, I don't I don't think we're I don't I, like I don't think we I don't think a, an appointment is imminent. Like I think we're still a bit a bit a bit of a ways off um, from actually hearing a name. Hey, it's Daryl here, cutting in with a quick ad read for ExpressVPN. You've heard us talk about how ExpressVPN can mask your IP address and unlock content from all over the world. Hello, BBC iPlayer, Dutch Netflix, and a Taiwanese subscription to Eleven Sports. But have we told you about the security ExpressVPN offers? I think we have, but I'm going to do it again. It's a virtual private network, which means once you connect to the internet via ExpressVPN 
all your network data is encrypted, secure and safe from hackers and looky-loos. It also means no one can track what you're doing online. So say you work at a large sporting organization based in Chicago and you want to search for another job, connecting to ExpressVPN first means there'd be no record of your escape attempt. ExpressVPN is also genuinely the fastest VPN I've ever used, and I've used a few. It's available for as little as $6.67 per month. To protect your online activity and find out how you can get three months free, three months free, go to expressvpn.com slash soccer. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash soccer for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash soccer to learn more. Okay, and while we're on Ernie Stewart, there's lots of other stuff to talk about, but while we're focused on Ernie Stewart, it seems to me from a, Ka- uh, a Caitlin Murray story for Yahoo Soccer that Ernie Stewart was the uh, chief defender of what is termed the Chicago policy, which is becoming yeah. the, the infamous um, diktat <laughs> that uh, if you're going to be a U.S. youth national team coach, you have to move to Chicago. That is that is correct. Um, and yeah, it was... Because on the outside, all we hear is criticism of this policy. And and somebody asked Ernie that there was about a 40 minute media session um, afterwards with Ernie, um, Carlos Cordero and Kate Markgraf. Um, and somebody somebody actually asked Carlos about the policy. And Ernie asked if he could take the question um, mm. and gave a pretty like passionate defense of it. Um and basically made it like from his perspective, it's ridiculous that anybody would criticize the policy. And ba- basically, his argument is that you know face-to-face interaction is important, and kind of like unscripted interaction is important. Like people that like you, you just that it, when you're seeing people consistently around the office, not just you know in scheduled virtual digital meetings um, or you know communicating via online messenger systems. Um, that that's really important for getting everybody on the same page. Um, and it's not just like coaching staffs. It's also coaches and sporting directors communicating with the communication staff and the person who runs coaching education and somebody who's involved in, you know, youth team management or whatever. Um, and like, to some extent, I understand that. Um, but I also think it's, I, I, I don't know, there's... Here, there's, there's a really interesting quote from Stuart. Um, he said, uh, what we're trying to do in the future when we talk about identity style play, it goes way further than, than that. I know no single club in the world that has success that has coaches scattered all over the place. So the, like, key, think, the key word there is club, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. And it's like another, there's been a lot of talk about him and, and Greg treating this like a, treating the national team like a club team. Um, and that seems like what his vision is here and like you guys had Bobby Warshaw on the pod probably last month um and I think he gave a he had had some I I think really interesting takes on just this idea of trying to treat it like a club and that there's like there's some merit to it like just because other national teams don't do that doesn't mean it's inherently bad and wrong um but I also think think like thinking of this as a club is a lot of problematic and there was another instance where Carlos Cadero like referenced small European countries as an example you know they have everything under one roof they have the national team staff and they have coaching education and youth team stuff and then they have fields right outside at these like 
training centers. Um, but obviously, they're like comparing a small European country to the United States, which is basically the size of Europe as a whole. Is you know, it's it's apples to oranges completely. And the idea that there would be one centralized location is very problematic in that sense in the U.S. Um, it's also true that Soccer House is not a big soccer campus, right? It's just it's a big old no. mansion with no soccer fields attached to it. Right. Exactly. And that's the and that's the issue. So, like, I, I do think there's merit to having everybody under one roof and everything under one roof, but to institute that policy when you are also some, to say everybody has to move to Chicago when you're simultaneously saying, okay, but our Chicago, our main Chicago office isn't adequate. We're going to look for other space in Chicago, and long term, we're thinking about possibly moving somewhere else. You know, I think that's the main issue here. And I, I like so like instituting that policy when it only could be in place for it, specific to Chicago for a few years. I think that's that's where a lot of a lot of the issue is. Yeah, because all these people could now be told, oh, by the way, now you're all moving to Kansas. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Did it, it also seems to me maybe that uh, it would have been better to have a policy of encouraging people to move to Chicago but not demanding it. And then you wouldn't have lost coaches like Vandenberg. Yeah. And, you know, so, so they have been somewhat flexible with this, actually, to, to be fair to them. And okay. like, uh, so Vladko, for example, is not moving to Chicago, I believe. Oh, I believe I he's living in, that. That's I believe he's, he's living in Kansas City um, and will spend like a couple days a week in Chicago when he's not off you know, in a national team training camp or something. Yeah. Um, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I don't think Kate Markov moved to Chicago either. I think she – I'm not I'm not 100% sure about this. But I guess my point is, so, like, there, there's this argument of, well, if Pep Guardiola wanted to coach a national team but didn't want to move to Chicago, like, this would rule out Pep Guardiola as a candidate. Like, I think if Pep Guardiola wanted to coach the national team – and U.S. Soccer wanted him, but his one specification was he didn't want to move to Chicago. I think they'd make an allowance for that, um, and they might make an allowance for, and maybe they'd make an allowance for. Or I, I don't know what the level you would have to be at to to get that allowance made. Um, but it's not like a hard and fast rule as long as you can spend some time there. I think um, yeah. interacting with people. Um, but yeah, it's I don't know. It's it, it, the, the whole discussion of that was very interesting. Um, so uh, speaking of speaking of moving. I believe there was some talk from Carlos Cordero about moving out of Soccer House, like outgrowing Soccer House. Like, was he specific about where U.S. Soccer might move its location to? So I think, so like, basically the situation is like Soccer House. For the for those who don't know, is this you know back back in the early '90s, the city of Chicago basically like lured the U.S. Soccer Federation to Chicago and gave them these two. 19th century mansions to serve as their headquarters in exchange for getting the opening game of the 1994 world cup for hosting that. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. That's, that's I, I'm sort of hilarious. That. Yeah. Um, and that, of course that was back when us soccer had a few dozen employees. Um, yeah. and now they have 180 and the space, yeah, the space is just completely inadequate in a lot of ways, both so the, just, the city of Chicago. Like we really want Diana Ross to take that penalty kick. In. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so in the short term, us soccer is they're, they're going to lease office space within Chicago. That's the short term solution. And so they'll okay. have another office somewhere nearby um, that I imagine, you know, some portion of the staff will move to um, as they, cause they're continuing. I think, I mean, Carlos Cordero 
I think he said they're at around 180 employees right now. And he threw out the number 300 as a number they want they're going to get to in the somewhat near future. Interesting. Um, so that's pretty uh, remarkable growth. Um, yeah, let's hope that, at least one of them is a Spanish language uh, content producer. Yes, I would appreciate that, and a lot of people would appreciate that. Yep. Um, but so they, yeah, then beyond that, like they want to, the, the, they'll be moving out of Chicago. When I think when they so the, the long term vision is to get one national training center or multiple national training center that, as we mentioned, is this place that not only has all the people on the administrative side and the coaching staff, but also has a training field right outside the window, basically, or okay. several training fields. Um, so would this be a place yeah. that like national teams would meet up and play there like, and coaching education could happen and everything could happen in one place? Yeah, exactly. And I imagine like it would be like a lot of the youth national team training camps would be there and stuff like, and maybe not all of them. Um, yeah. But so the question is where that's going to be. And I think they're a long way off of, from figuring out where exactly that's going to be and, and what it'll look like. Um, I, they're very much still in the preliminary stages of those discussions. Um, but, I mean, you'd have to think that, like, Southern California, as an, like, as an example, that would be, a, that would be a, a pretty good choice, I think. Um, but the, the obvious issue is, like, there's no perfect location. Like, even Southern California has its faults because it's – you know, if that's where you're going to hold national team training camps and you're asking players from Europe to get all the way out there, right. you know, for these international breaks, like because it's such a big country, every location has something good about it. Every location has something bad about it. Um, so I think I actually my guess would be what you end up seeing is multiple multiple locations, multiple national training centers. And that's obviously something that's going to take a long time to to put in place um, and to, you know, physically build um, and, to, and to, to get everybody on board with. I weirdly, even though it doesn't sound that exciting, I would be excited by that though because I think it would make a lot of sense, especially if we had like an East Coast and a Central and a West Coast um, center or location. Exactly. Um, that, te- that teams could use and, and US soccer could use. That would not just look very professional. I think it would be really useful. Yep, exactly. And it would, it, it would solve this. It, it would solve, you know, the, the problem that's being discussed a lot about, having everybody under one roof, but also having them under one roof in a practical location. Um, and which, you know, Chicago as has been discussed is not, if you want to play soccer year round, can we afford this? Like financially, can us soccer afford to build all these centers? It's a very good question. And I, I imagine that's the main question that they're considering when they think about this. Um, because you know, they've, they've already developed various plans for how they're going to spend their money. Um, now, I think one big thing is that the 2026 World Cup should be a massive, you know, cash boom for them. Yes. Um, and so maybe it's something that maybe it's something that they do after the 2026 or maybe it's something that, that where they know 2026 is coming and they can afford to start spending the money before that and putting these plans in place. Yeah, they could do like a payday loan type thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Daryl here breaking in with an ad read for Away thoughtful luggage for modern travel i'm in boston right now and the luggage i brought with me is the away bigger 
carry-on. It's sized just a little bigger to make the most of the room you get for carry-on. It's got a lightweight and durable shell that's made to last a lifetime and has so far stood up well to the Boston weather. Next stop is northern Michigan, where I assume my suitcase will handle the weather better than I will. It's also got four 360-degree spinner wheels, so I'm as mobile as Frankie de Young when I'm moving along with my away bigger carry-on. It's got the optional ejectable battery, so I can keep my phone powered and keep on tweeting. It's got the removable laundry bag, so I never forget what's been worn and what hasn't we don't need to do the smell test with away luggage away luggage also comes with a hundred day trial so you can try it out and a lifetime warranty so they'll fix or replace any bag that needs it visit awaytravel.com slash tss and use promo code tss at checkout that's awaytravel.com slash tss and use promo code tss at checkout um so yeah so i imagine the 2026 world cup like cash windfall will be sort of like the 2016 Copa America Centenario, but on a, just with much bigger numbers. Um, and I've seen in your reporting, there's a lot of talk about the, um, we basically doubled the reserves almost, right, to $162 million with the 2016 right. Centenario money. And then, but I also saw in your reporting that the, um, the reserve is expected to keep dipping every year as US soccer spends the money, and that that 162 will go down to a 50 million reserve by financial year 2023. Um, so there are some um, uh, lawsuits that the U.S. soccer is fighting that I know that we'll be spending money on. Um, I want to talk about those, but I also want to talk about, do you know where the rest of that money is being spent? So, no, I don't know specifically, but I also haven't spent a ton of time looking into this. Um, so I would imagine it's and, – and a lot of it is still – to be spent like it's i think we're what we're about a year and a half into this five-year plan i think yeah um so not a lot and and also it's you know a, most of the spending comes in the later year like i believe they they're like the 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 plan deficit in the final year of this plan was like above 30 million dollars um okay. whereas in the first year of the plan like the reserves were only dropping from 150 million to like 139 million um, or something like that. Um, so I, but it, but it's going into stuff. It, it's, it's what you'd expect. Like I, I imagine there are various youth development initiatives and coaching education and, and stuff like that. Is this stuff that could be available as information if we, if we went after it or is it, are they being somewhat secretive about it? it I, I imagine if we went after it, we, we would be able to, I, I'm sure they'd be happy to tell us where it's being spent. Yeah. I just haven't paid. I, I, I think the reason I, and probably a lot of, and, and you and you guys and a lot of other people haven't paid attention is because they're not spending it on any, any like big noticeable, like we're going to go spend $50 million and build this, 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 this set of fields or, yeah. or, or complex or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's no ribbon cutting necessarily. It's just a little no. money into this program, a little money into that program. Right. Or at least no ribbon cutting that we care about. Yeah. <laughs> just some tiny ribbons somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you mentioned, um, in, in one story that the, uh, they expect to spend, for example, $9 million fighting lawsuits in financial year 2020, which includes right now and then through to, I assume, like April next year, right? Right, April um, 1. So what what are those lawsuits is my question. I, I know there's the uh, the um, uh, U.S. Women's National Team lawsuits. I I can't remember what else what else is U.S. soccer fighting. So it's that one. It's uh, it's. The, the separate Hope Solo one, uh, which is over similar issues, but is, is separate. Um, she just filed separately, basically. 
Right. Um, and yeah, and there was some there was some legal stuff about whether they were going to be joined or not, and they're they're not going to be joined. Um, there is the 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 U.S. Soccer Foundation sued them. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was basically yes, it was really dumb. Um, at least from the outside, it seems dumb. Um, it's over like the U.S. So-, the, so the U.S. Soccer Foundation is like the charitable organization basically um and this was over like and obviously you know they have very similar names and they're you know similar like they have the same uh, you know ussf would be their yeah. would be the acronym um and it was over the lawsuit was over like branding marks or something like that yeah um, so that sounded dumb uh but the big one that i it sounds like based on what i hear is costing them is costing us soccer a lot of money is the NASL lawsuit. Um, is which this, frankly, I, can, can I take a guess at this before you give me the actual details? Yeah. Is this the NASL arguing that US soccer favored MLS back in the day and wouldn't let NASL become a Division One sanctioned league? Correct. Or MLS and USL, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's, that's basically it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, and that's still going on. That's so yeah. weird because NASL and, is no longer around and yet they're just continuing with this lawsuit right and i mean yeah i i and i have not dug into it like you would have to ask somebody else about what exactly the status of it is um but yeah it's still ongoing and because it's gone on for so long that's why it's the one that is costing them a lot of money oh and and asl some of the teams had very wealthy owners right so those guys if they're footing the bill that they can just go keep going with the legal expenses and maybe not even notice that the money is missing Exactly. Yeah, it's, um, it seems like they are very committed to, to fighting this battle. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, OK, one one of the thing that I'm really interested in, of course, is the CEO search. So Dan Flynn either has stepped down or is stepping down. Uh, has stepped down. Has yeah. stepped down. So right now there is no uh, CEO chief executive officer. I guess my first question, did you get any sense of what's taking so long? So we got a sense of what Carlos Cordero says is uh, is taking so long. Whether okay. we whether Cynicism we noted. whether we completely believe his narrative is is kind of up to us. Um, okay. But basically, his version is that yeah. So Dan Flynn announced he was stepping down February, I think, pretty around then. Soon after that, they started a search, hired a search firm, and then. In May, apparently, um, Carlos Cordero says that he wasn't really happy with where the search was going and he wasn't happy with the job the search firm had done or the candidates that it had, that it had dug up. Um, and so they decided they were kind of just going to reboot the search. And in September, they hired – now, I guess because the summer was busy, it took a while. Um, and Carlos Cordero was off in, in France, of course, um, and so it took until September to hire another search firm and basically restart the search. Um, and now, you know, that search firm has come up with various candidates. And on Thursday, apparently, thir- last week, Thursday, they interviewed a bunch of candidates. Now, we don't have any names. We don't have any specific number of candidates or what stage this is at. Um, but that's basically Carlos Cordero's narrative. Now, of course, coinciding with that narrative um, – it was all the the issues over the summer with the Glassdoor reviews and yes. the this idea of there was kind of like a quiet rebellion inside U.S. soccer. There was that good New York Times article that that details some of it. Carlos Cadero says that it did not impact the CEO search, um, 
but the cynicism and just what the, the, the logical uh, a logical assumption would be that so Jay Berhalter Berhalter was widely considered to be a favorite or a top candidate for the role for a while. He's the current COO, brother of Greg, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we don't really know where he stands. Um, and there's an idea that maybe the Glassdoor reviews did have an impact and that it was probably going to be Burhalter. And now they realize they kind of have to open it up and not, not let that happen and that it should come from the, that maybe the CEO should come from the outside. Um, does, the, does the timing of the Glassdoor reviews and the um, reopening of the search, does that all line up with, with the theory you just outlined? Yes, I believe it does. Yeah. But Carlos Cordero is not going to admit that that's how it went down, right? No. And so it's interesting because Carlos Cordero does admit that the Glassdoor reviews and a a lot of that was – I forget. He might have called it a wake-up call or something along those lines. Um, So I I remember a quote, something about tremor lines or something. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I actually have your your story in front of me. I'll see see if I can find this. Yeah. So he, I mean, he did say, yeah, it was a good wake up call. It, yeah, it alerted us to potentially some tremor lines. There we go. Uh, and then, so basically, the main thing that they've revealed that's come out of that is they brought in this consulting firm that works with various organizations on organizational development, basically. Um, and that that firm came in and gave it like a fifty, sixty question survey to all U.S. soccer employees. And they're basically they're basically figuring out what's wrong with themselves um, okay. and, and trying to move forward, which like now a, a lot of people will be cynical about this and say, oh, that's just for PR. So it, it looks like that they're they're trying to address their issues and they're not actually going to do anything. Uh, but m- my impression is that they are that this is legit um, and they they do know that they have to evolve. Um, and, and and Carlos Cordero admitted that. They didn't handle the growth, their growth of the of like the size of their staff, as well as they could have, or as well as they should have, and that led to a lot of issues. So that, um, that's possibly what led to some of the the bad workplace, the bad culture in the workplace. Yeah, I think I, exactly. Um, now, I mean it, that also, you know, there are like good, good leaders would would be able to fix that. Good executives would fix that, um, mm-hmm. and you have to place some blame on the executives setting that culture too. Um, but it is, it is hard to manage rapid growth like that. Um, and so I, 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 I am, I came away somewhat hopeful that they were going to address some of these issues. Is it as simple as if Jay Behalter is appointed as the next CEO, then that means that in the end they've ignored the Glassdoor reviews and we should all be slightly concerned about the workplace culture at US soccer and what happens going forward. And if it's not Jay Berhalter, then we we can be kind of optimistic that Carlos Cordero saw the light and saw saw the need for a bit of a, a bit of a change in direction. Honestly, like I think that's like yes, I think the answer to that is, and it's not it's not that simple. Like they could a, a lot of things can evolve within the organization, even if Jay Berhalter were appointed CEO. I think, um, but also. If you have any, if you're U.S. Soccer and you have, and any sense for what has gone wrong or where you need to go, and even just from a public image standpoint, 
um, and what message it would send to and what message it would send to your own employees to yeah. after all of that, after all of the news surrounding Glassdoor to then still appoint Jay Berhalter as a CEO. I just don't see how you can do that. Um, yeah. And I do think it, we should be very critical of U.S. soccer if they decide to do that. Because that would be just going and standing right over the tremor line, right? Right. <laughs> and, maybe, it would, and maybe even jumping up and down on it and seeing if you can make it open up. Yep. And it would be telling the employees that, you know, it, they're saying publicly that they hear them. It would be telling the employees in practice, no, we don't hear you. All of this stuff is for PR. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. Oh, so do we have any sort of timeline on when we might get a final um, appointment? Uh, I believe so. I want to say Carlos Cordero might have said 20 early 2020. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure about that. No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't put. A, no, actually, sorry. I take it back. I don't think he put any sort of timeline on it. And okay. he said, yeah, he, he, he left it completely. He was very vague about it. And his reasoning is like for the confidentiality of the process and to be fair to the candidates or whatever. Um, but no, no timeline at all. I, that said, like, I'd expect, I think early 2020 is probably a good guess. Yeah, so we'll, um, we'll say Q1 2020 would make sense, right? Yeah. Otherwise, right. It's, it's a bit weird if it goes on that much longer. Right. Um, and I also, I do think, like, at some point, they really have, they really should give us more information on, just like, yeah, like we, we don't know, we really don't know anything, you know, until they give some sort of specifics about how many candidates they have or anything like along those lines. Yeah. Um, everybody's going to remain cynical and very skeptical that this search process isn't really a search process and that they've just, they're just going to do what they do and and, and select a candidate um, and, and, and that they haven't gone through as thorough of a search as they say they're going through. Um, so I would really hope that we get some sort of info on that soon. Was there any, um, if we're playing the guessing game, was there any information? Was it like, was there anyone from overseas with their internal candidates mentioned? Was, was there any information at all? So the one, so that he said, uh, Carlos said there's one, one candidate from overseas. Um, okay. he, he mentioned, he specifically said that there were men and women interviewed, okay. um, or not necessarily interviewed yet, but that are candidates. Um, the one interesting part I, I, I thought was, I, I believe it was Jeff Carlisle from ESPN asked him or somebody. Yeah, I think I think Jeff asked him whether there were internal candidates. And Carlos said, you know, very specifically, I said at the beginning there were internal candidates. And then Paul Tenorio asked him, are there still internal candidates? Oh, clever Tenorio. And Carlos wouldn't answer that. He said, I'm not going to comment beyond that. Um, so, so that could that mean us, that Jay Behalter has been removed, right? I guess so. Yeah. You know, we have, yeah, we have, again, that, that like doesn't really give us any information, but it's also just interesting to keep in mind as we move forward. And it, yeah, it means that there's, it means that there's an outside chance there are no internal candidates, um, which I think a lot of people would be on board with. And a lot of people yeah. think would, um, but again, it, it's vague and there could be, but for all we know, could be more than half internal candidates. I don't <laughs> um, is there anything about this board meeting that like I haven't asked you about that stood out to you? I'm trying to just cover all my bases here. Um, that's a no. I mean, I, I think I yeah, I kind of set the scene at the beginning. You know, it's basically yeah, no, no nothing else that I, I I tried to include most of. The, I think most of the interesting stuff, if if I haven't mentioned it already in the podcast, is either in what I wrote or in what uh, Caitlin Murray wrote for us um, over the weekend. So uh, if if there is something, you can uh, listeners can go find it there. 
Well, I'll tell you what, I'll put links to all four of those stories in the show notes so people can, uh, can read all of that on, on Yahoo Saka. Well, that would be lovely. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Henry, I will say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Daryl. Always a pleasure.